0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Carvana with thousands of options under $20,000 plus customizable financing terms and down payments as low as $0 down. It's easy to find a car that fits your lifestyle. Visit Carvana.com or download the app today. Terms and conditions may apply. Hey, it's Todd. I'm your host for this edition of the news roundup. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is changing rapidly, and things might have changed by the time you hear this episode. So stay up to date with all the latest by listening to your local NPR member station and visiting npr.org. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. You're listening to The 1A Podcast. I'm Todd Zwillick, and it's time for another edition of The News Roundup. What a week.
1: The fact is they made a firm conclusion. I did not break the law.
0: And hours before. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, we are here because for the first time since the War of 1812, our nation's capital came under violent assault. That's how it all started at the Supreme Court. But the big question is, how's it going to end Also in the news, a groundbreaking verdict in Michigan, one that could reshape the debate over who's held criminally responsible for gun violence here in the United States. And what happens when one chamber wants to govern and the other wants to campaign? Our guests this week are Megan Scully, Bloomberg News' Congress editor, is in the studio. Welcome, Megan. Thanks for having me. Libby Casey is here. She's a senior news anchor covering politics and breaking news at The Washington Post. Libby, great to see you. Thanks so much, Todd. And Anita Kumar, you know her, Senior Managing Editor at Politico. Happy Friday, Anita.
2: Great to be back.
0: Good to have you here. But because we have so much legal news this week, guys, Supreme Court, Trump's immunity, special counsel, we're going to start with an extra guest to help us keep it all straight. Mary McCord is here. Mary is Executive Director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection at Georgetown University, who joins us from Washington, D.C. Mary, great to have you.
3: Thanks for having me, Tom. Oh,
0: good. So good to have you. All right. Let's start with special counsel Robert Herr and some of the intense reaction to his report into President Joe Biden's mishandling of classified documents. Now, Herr found that there wasn't evidence to charge Joe Biden and that he cooperated with the investigation. But it's what he said about Joe Biden's age and mental acuity that's riled the president. To quote Robert Hur. his report says that Biden willfully retained and disclosed classified materials after his vice presidency. Biden isn't being charged. Neither is Mike Pence, of course. Donald Trump, who's accused of mishandling classified documents and obstruction at Mar-a-Lago, is facing charges, Mary. How come? Why the difference?
3: Well, I would say special counsel Robert Hur went out of his way to point out the distinctions between the case against Mr. Trump and the investigation of, of President Biden. And he pointed out that Mr. Trump, unlike President Biden, had uh, stood in the way of returning, you know, getting documents, the classified materials back into the hands of um, the archives and the places where they needed to be kept. He had refused to turn them over. He had uh, lied about Um, to his own lawyer about their existence. He then recruited and uh, got two people to help him obstruct the investigation including through physically moving classified materials and deleting or attempting to delete videotape evidence. So the obstruction there was a very different fact that did not exist with respect to the president. The president uh, on his own um, raised with the the archivists and the FBI the fact that he had found classified materials. He consented to full searches of his home and his office. And of course, he sat down and did interviews. So that cooperation was a big distinction between these two cases. Now,
0: her also included lines in his report referring to Joe Biden as an elderly man with a poor memory who forgot the year of his son's death. Mary, you spent years at the Department of Justice. Was that a normal thing for a special counsel to say in a report like this?
3: So here, here's the thing. This report is kind of like a prosecution memo. And, a, and in a prosecution memo, which normally never sees the light of day to the public, it is a pure internal document. This is where a prosecutor, during, after an investigation, would lay out all the facts that they developed, the evidence that they developed, and then they would also point out the weaknesses in their case so that they ultimately come up with a recommendation either to prosecute and seek an indictment or to decline prosecution. And... Part of the weaknesses of the case are, of course, that the evidence is equivocal as to whether... Um, President Biden willfully retained and disclosed classified documents, and I will note that even though you quoted that phrase from the executive summary of the report, what what uh, many people have left out is what it says is our investigation uncovered evidence that President Biden willfully retained and disclosed. He then says, for the reasons summarized in this report, we conclude that the evidence does not establish his guilt mm. beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. So I, I don't think it. I don't think his conclusion was he did willfully retain. There's some evidence of that, but there's some evidence against that. And some of the evidence against that has to do with what Mr. Her found to be President Biden's uh, faulty memory. And that would make him uh, make the case susceptible to an argument that this was he merely forgot about this. It was not intentional and it was not willful. So if this report was just purely internal, I would not find it shocking to see those kind of references to his to his memory in the report. The problem is, of course, Robert Hur was operating under the special counsel regulations, knowing that his report was likely to be made public because it's up to, of course... A.G. Garland to make it public, but A.G. Garland, certainly in circumstances as politically heated as this, this, was not going to say, no, we're not going to make this document public. So that's why I think you're seeing some of the outrage, because this then looks a little bit like a political hit job to point out memory issues with respect to the president in the middle of a campaign.
0: Yeah, because her said a thing that he had to know would be a firestorm in the campaign. All right. Well, Donald Trump, meanwhile, is charged with 91 felonies, including federal charges for conspiring to overturn the election and deprive Americans of our right to have our votes counted. This week, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that Donald Trump is not immune from prosecution for those four criminal charges. The three judges wrote, this court cannot accept that the presidency places its former occupants above the law for all time thereafter. So, Mary, what happens now?
3: So what the circuit did is they gave Donald Trump until Monday, February 12th, to um, seek a stay in the U.S. Supreme Court, a stay of their ruling, because otherwise they are going to send them what's called the mandate back to the district court. And essentially what the mandate means is, district court, the ball's now back in your court. You can proceed with your case. They were holding off on sending that mandate until Monday. If the former president files a motion in the Supreme Court for a stay of the mandate pending his filing of a cert petition, then, of course, the the case will remain stayed. And so all eyes now are going to be on the Supreme Court. It's almost a certainty that Mr. Trump will file that on Monday, and then we'll see how quickly the Supreme Court
0: acts. How long could it take for them to decide whether they'll take the case or whether they'll stay it? When will we have news about when Trump's trial for these four charges might happen?
3: So the Supreme Court could take a motion for the a stay and treat it as a motion for cert, a petition for cert, which is petition for review. They could grant it based on that. They did that in Bush v. Gore, or they could issue a stay if they if they decide they want to issue a stay. And the president could take you know much longer to file his petition, and then the the Supreme Court t- could take as long as it deems you know it wants to take before it actually rules on the petition. If it then granted it, that would then trigger a brief schedule, which normally would be quite lengthy, but I, I think there's good reason to believe that the Supreme Court would expedite this briefing schedule. And to be clear, I think they will expedite review of a petition for cert, and, particu- and and if they do issue a stay, I think they're likely to set an accelerated schedule even for the petition. Now, it is also possible they will deny a stay and deny cert. Um, the the D.C. Circuit issued a unanimous opinion. It's a strong opinion. It, it uh you know deals with all three serious arguments that Mr. Trump made and the Supreme Court doesn't have to agree with every single word with, within the DC circuit's opinion but if they agree, agree at the end of the day that president Trump, that the former president is not entitled to absolute immunity from criminal prosecution they could de- deny certain and I think it's you know I think that's not beyond the realm of possibility I don't really think they want to rule on this mm. I mean this is a loaded calendar
0: Sticking with the Supreme Court, by the way, may be a related case. Also in the court this week, of course, oral arguments into Colorado's ruling that Donald Trump is disqualified from running for president or disqualified from the ballot under the 14th Amendment, Section 3. Mary, it seemed from the oral arguments that justices aren't really interested in disqualifying Donald Trump from the ballot. Do you think that for the justices dealing with Donald Trump on the 14th Amendment case, and the immunity case, that there's a connection between the two?
3: So I think they would certainly deny that there's any connection if they were asked and they were (laughs) to give responses. Um, They're separate cases. They're completely separate legal issues that really are not very related, other than the fact that they both stem from the fact that there was an insurrection on January 6th, and there's the question of Mr. Trump's culpability for that insurrection. But I think they would say each case would be dealt with on its facts. But they're human beings, right? They can't help but know that both of these cases are in existence right now. They obviously are going to have to rule on the 14th Amendment disqualification case, and they now have before him, or will on Monday have before them, the decision about whether to take up the other case. I would say, that it's not that the court isn't interested in, um, you know, the application of the 14th Amendment Section 3. What I heard during the questioning yesterday is Uh, almost everyone on the court, uh, regardless of what president appointed them, is deeply concerned about the ability of states, through their ballot access laws, to make decisions about the eligibility of a candidate for a national office, a federal national office like the presidency, and concerned about disuniformity between the states um, based on the state state enforcement of essentially this constitutional provision. And they, you know, different justices express concerns about other things related to this. They did not spend very much time at all talking about sort of the the core issue of did Mr. Trump engage Mm -hmm. in insurrection, but they're concerned about the state having the ability to make those decisions.
0: As I've said before, Mary McCord is the co-host of what I think is the best podcast on prosecuting Donald Trump. It's called Prosecuting Donald Trump. With her co-host, Andrew Weissman, I recommend it. Mary, as always, thanks so much.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: We're going to take a quick break here. We'll be back with more of the News Roundup in just a moment. Stay with us.
2: I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR, where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If
4: you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at Life Kit, we want it to be a special one
0: magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday,
4: even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR.
0: All right, panel, let's pick up where we left off. We have Mary McCord covering the legal landscape with us just a moment ago. Let's consider the political implications of what we heard from the special counsel, from the D.C. Court of Appeals, and from the Supreme Court.
3: Why should a single state have the ability to make this determination not only for their own citizens, but for the rest of the nation?
0: Justice Elena Kagan there from the court just this week. All right. No immunity for Donald Trump. Fourteenth Amendment Section 3 case is Donald Trump disqualified from the ballot. Special counsel report saying... Joe Biden won't be prosecuted, but also calling his age and his memory into question. Libby, how did you digest all of this this week?
4: There's so much to, to focus on here. I think the Supreme Court case is is a great example, though, to just try to divide the crazy politics of this moment with the legal processes that are taking place. And, for example, the chief justice, John Roberts, he wants to see as much unity as he can on his bench. So I love that Mary talked about sort of how specific and nitty gritty they were getting on some of these like subsets of the case. They weren't talking big thoughts about insurrection. Uh, the lawyer for the Colorado plaintiffs, he wanted to talk about that. They really wanted to focus on limiting the scope. And so I think we're likely to see, uh, you know, as much unity as John Roberts can get together on that court. Elena Kagan's a great example, a liberal who will by all likelihood side with um, her more conservative colleagues to try to get a broader. If this, Todd, if this comes down to a six to three split, conservatives versus liberals, that is just going to be a powder keg in this political moment. So Roberts wants to get more unity on that. If he can also get unity on this question of immunity and perhaps not touch it, Uh, allow the unity that came down from the lower court to, to follow through, it will sort of try to calm the nerves of this moment. But when you look at what the special counsel's report did to Joe Biden, this should be a great day for Joe Biden. He should be saying, great, no criminal charges were merited, full stop. Instead, the details that her went into has made Democrats crazed. It made Joe Biden crazed last night himself. He really came out swinging because it is damaging to him when it paints this portrait of, a, of, an, of an elderly man.
0: Joe Biden in his press conference last night, Megan, you know, furious and defiant Thursday that the special counsel would talk about his age and his memory. How dare you refer to my dead son? I've never forgotten a day. I've never forgotten for a moment the day he died. And then while he's swatting back at a report that called him an elderly man with a poor memory, he referred to the president of Egypt as the president of Mexico, I mean that happened live. How did you digest that whole thing?
5: So it's important to note it's not the first time that that he has flubbed in, in this week. Uh, foreign leaders' name, he Angela Merkel. You know, referred to her as, as her predecessor. Got the names of the the president of France mixed up as well. So this is just really fueling the attacks from the right that the president is, is this elderly man and doesn't have a great memory or really a, a grasp on his job that raising the question of whether or not he's fit to serve another four years as commander in chief. Of course, Donald Trump, frequently gets names wrong. But that is chalked up more to a lack of a grasp of who these foreign leaders are than a failure of memory. I mean, the
0: reporting is completely different when this happens. Donald Trump, very famously to those of us who follow this, confused Viktor Orban of Hungary and called him the president of Turkey. He's done it more than once. Now, you already mentioned Congress. Remember Congress? There was so much news out of Congress that got completely occluded by all of this legal news this week. GOP senators blocked a bipartisan border deal on Wednesday, which feels like it was about four months ago, but it was just on Wednesday. Oklahoma Republican Senator James Lankford was at the helm of negotiations on a immigration bill that was supposed to be tied with aid for Ukraine and Israel. And Lankford said that one popular right-wing media personality was partly to blame for the lack of support within his own party, though Lankford wouldn't say exactly who it is. That told me flat out, if you try to move a bill that solves the border crisis during this presidential year, I will do whatever I can to destroy you, because I do not want you to solve this during the presidential election. By the way, they have been faithful to their promise and have done everything they can to destroy me. Megan, faithful to the promise, everything to destroy me. Um, Republicans demanded a strong immigration bill as the price for funding for Ukraine. They got that bill. They got the deal. Then they killed it. What else happened in Congress this week?
5: (laughs) (laughs) Well, in in terms of that deal, it was... Astonishing how quickly it died. It was within 24 hours. Those who supported it were essentially walking it back. And what Senator Langford is talking about there is, is essentially the the concern that this bill didn't go far enough and would hurt Republican candidates for the Senate, for the presidency, for the House in the 24 election. This is why big pieces of legislation don't tend to happen in an election year, particularly one that is this volatile. The incredible walk back we saw, not just from far-right senators, but from Senator Thune, from Senator Tillis, from, you know, across the board, um, People who are are typically allied with Senator McConnell to turn on this was was astonishing and um, and I think really puts to bed this issue for this year. And as as the chief Democratic negotiator said, Senator Murphy, probably for the next decade, even as we see this migrant crisis and and, and its effects permeating throughout the country.
0: Libby, that border bill died, not just because it's an election year, yes, because it's an election year, but further, because Donald Trump killed it. Congressional Republicans said they wanted a deal. Donald Trump had other ideas. Can you explain sort of the the internal workings of what's been going on when it comes to immigration and Republicans?
4: I mean, it just shows Donald Trump's total grasp on the party he did not want them to strike a deal. It is better for him politically if Americans are outraged and riled up about immigration, if they're seeing headlines about a crisis at the border, if they're living in a, in a northern city and seeing busloads of um, migrants coming through. And so he didn't want them to, to strike a deal. And he made that clear. And that is what totally, I'm trying to find a polite word, it totally hurt Lankford. I mean, Lankford is a Died in the wool conservative. He's, you know, he is a conservative's conservative. And the fact that he put himself out there and negotiated this only to be pilloried I mean, Trump lied this week and said that he didn't ever endorse Lankford, which of course he had. It just goes to show you who's pulling the strings. It also shows perhaps the waning power of Mitch McConnell, who has been such an influential and powerful leader of the Senate Republicans. Everything from keeping Merrick Garland to becoming the next Supreme Court justice during the end of the Obama term and onward. Um, But it's really Donald Trump who's pulling the strings right now. And you saw some other Republicans questioning if it's time for new leadership in the Senate.
0: Reports of meetings, lunch meetings among Republican senators regularly dissolving into shouting matches. It's not going well over there right now. Anita, all of that being said, it does look like funding for Ukraine and funding for Israel, which initially died because the border bill died, might have a second life. The Senate has advanced a bill with funding in it. That bill is not passed yet. But what's happening there?
2: Yeah, so they're going back to what they originally said they wouldn't do, which is um, take a bill that will offer money for Ukraine, Israel, Gaza, and some other places around the world. So they're looking at. The foreign aid bill that I think they talked about months ago, but then started on this whole compromise, supposedly compromise, sort of a uh, let's put the border in there, and now they're back to this. I think that what has happened, obviously, with the failure of the border bill is they've realized, look – There are Republicans on the Hill and, of course, the president in the White House saying we need to provide this aid and we need to go back to it and try to figure out if we can do it. We still don't know if that's going to pass, but this is sort of the plan B. We haven't heard much of a plan C yet, so I think there's a lot of hope that this might pass. But, again, we're back to where we were months ago, which is let's pass a bill that um, offers this aid. And I think that this is – Sort of the the hope that they have, and then we'll see what happens. Yes, there are definitely some Republicans that don't want to provide all of this aid, but you know we're looking to see which Republicans do, and of course there's going to need there's going to need to be that Republican support or enough Republican support for this bill to pass.
0: We're going to head now to a quick break. Back with more in a moment.
6: On it's been a minute.
5: In the climate-ravaged year of 2072, the city of Pura protects residents from global catastrophes, but a dark secret threatens Pura's very existence. Binge all episodes of The Last City ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.
0: Let's get back to the conversation. Um, Gang, a new poll from NPR, PBS NewsHour, and Marist shows that immigration is the biggest issue for Republican voters right now, while Democratic voters are most concerned— with preserving democracy. Well, we were just talking about Congress, Megan. How is the current chaos in Congress over the border deal being spun by Democrats and by Republicans with their base?
5: So we have uh, Republicans for the last several months trying to really pin the border problem on Democrats generally and President Biden in particular. And when you look at the polling, both the latest poll that you just referenced as, as well as polling across the board, Biden's unfavorables on this are extremely high. Um, and a lot of this has to do with the fact that the issue is permeating across the country and, and is really stressing services even in northern cities where a lot of these migrants are going. That is why this is becoming such a national conversation but what we're seeing now is democrats after this deal collapsed the one we just discussed uh that Senator Lankford negotiated with with democrats uh we're trying to see republic or democrats recalibrate this conversation and pin it on republicans for for really denying passage of or e- even consideration of the biggest immigration compromise in a generation i mean
0: that's what happened mhm
5: yes <laughs> yes so you <laughs> you have House Republicans saying, but it didn't go far enough. It's my way or the highway. It used to be in Washington that if everybody hates a compromise, that was a mark of a good deal. Something in it for everyone to to not like, but there was enough there to grease the wheels to get it through. This kind of compromises the sort of thing that 20 years ago would have passed, begrudgingly, but it would have passed both chambers. Now, in in this era of political black and white, it it, it stood no chance, and and we saw it demise less than 24 hours after it was announced.
0: I mean, 20 years ago, you never would have seen this bill. There was no pathway to citizenship. (laughs) There was no... Uh, reconsideration of young people with DACA, all those debates are not debates anymore. So even 20 years ago, the bill would have been very, very different. And the senators railing against the bill would have been extremely different. All right. I mentioned that Republicans behind closed doors are getting into screaming matches. If you thought that the Senate was the most dysfunctional group in town, get ready for the House of Representatives, because on Tuesday, House Republicans put a motion on the floor to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas over his handling of an influx of migrants at the border. And that motion failed. And here's what House Speaker Mike Johnson had to say Democracy is messy. We live in a time of divided government. Uh, we have a razor thin uh, margin here, and every vote counts. Sometimes uh, when you're counting votes and people show up when they're not expected to be in the building, it changes the equation. Libby, is democracy messy or are House Republicans messy, (laughs) or both?
4: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think the headlines of, like, the dysfunction of Congress this week, no, hard no. It was the dysfunction of Republicans, and Democrats were happy to sit on the sidelines and watch this all unfold. Nancy Pelosi never would have put a vote like this on the floor without being in total assurance, like, having complete control over knowing what the outcome would be. This was a shocker, folks, uh, because it is a very slim majority for a number of reasons— George Santos, remember that guy? They kicked him out. Um, Steve Scalise, one of the top Republicans in the House, was uh, in cancer treatment, hadn't come back yet. And then at the last minute, Todd, Democrat Al Green was wheeled into the chamber to take the vote, fresh from the hospital, wearing literally like hospital grubs, scrubs, <laughs> and, uh, and a gown and, you know, that whole thing. So it, there really was, um, it was really a, a miscount by the leadership, uh, by, the, by the people who were supposed to count the votes to understand what was going to happen. But... One of the Republicans who ended up voting against impeaching Mayorkas said, I had told leadership they knew how I was going to vote. It seems like Johnson thought that he could just muscle this through and sort of bluff members of his caucus to support it or look like they had egg on their face. But it didn't work because the guys who said, I'm not going to vote for it, ended up not voting
0: for it. It was a flail. I mean, this kind of stuff generally just doesn't happen. On the House floor, you go to the floor with the votes you know you have. And it wasn't the only time this happened. Anita, Republicans tried to pass a bill earlier in the week funding just Israel, take Israel out of the equation of border and Ukraine and Gaza, take it all out and let's just fund Israel. And that one failed.
2: Yeah, I mean the vote counters either aren't counting the votes or we have a new sort of uh strategy here uh by House Republicans. Let's just put it out there and see what happens. I mean I just think this goes to what kind of uh you know group they have there in the House. The House speaker is not fully in control of his caucus and the and the conference and we've seen that. Obviously, we saw that the former speaker was ousted. So, I mean, we do know that this is what's happening and it's a speaker and a leadership team trying to figure out exactly how to manage this. But going to the floor with a vote, as Libby just said, it's just, it's not done. And it does make the leadership team and the speaker look like They don't have the control, and they don't know what's going to happen. So I don't know that this really helps them, but this the Mayorkas thing was just really shocking because they've been talking about this for a year. They've been collecting what they say is evidence. They had a whole list of things that they wanted to to show. This is their issue. This is the border. This is immigration, and they didn't know what was going to happen.
0: All right. We're going to step away from politics in just a moment because there is a lot of other news out in the country. But politics just for one more second, because the chair of the Republican National Committee, Megan, Ronna McDaniel, who's been in there, handpicked by Donald, by Donald Trump, she's leaving. Why is Ronna McDaniel leaving now? Who's gonna replace her?
5: So she has been in this role since 2017, so which seems like a lifetime ago. And since then, we've really seen an underwhelming performance of Republicans in in elections, you know, particularly in November 2022 when they had hoped to take the house by resounding numbers and now they have the narrowest of majorities and and we're seeing the effects of that now. Um and and they failed to get the Senate and then when you look at the fundraising numbers the war chest for Trump and the war versus the war chest for Biden. Biden's got another has about four times what Trump has to spend in in the lead up to the election. So it's no surprise that uh, Trump is seeking to get her out of that job and put in place somebody, potentially an election denier, um, in that job Hmm. to carry him through November.
0: Okay. Outside of politics, out into the country, major news out of a Michigan courtroom this week when a jury found Jennifer Crumley responsible for enabling her son's deadly mass shooting at high school.
7: On count one
5: of involuntary manslaughter, as to Madison Baldwin, we find the defendant guilty of
3: involuntary manslaughter. On count two of involuntary manslaughter in regards to Tate Muir, we find the defendant guilty of involuntary manslaughter.
0: Now, it was Jennifer Crumley's son who killed four of his classmates at his Michigan high school in late 2021, a tragic incident, and flash forward to now, which was a groundbreaking trial. Crumley is the first parent in the country to be held responsible, Libby, for a child carrying out a school shooting. What did prosecutors actually show at this trial? Why is it so important?
4: Yeah, I mean, this that's a new standard. Prosecutors were able to show that she was grossly negligent in not securing the gun that her son used and that she had a legal duty to prevent him from harming others, even if she didn't know his very specific plan. Now, now there are some... Uh, caveats to this, Todd, um, in terms of how it could be used in other cases, although it is groundbreaking. There were some very specific circumstances here. Uh, The the mother took him target shooting. She bought the gun. um, They knew that he was in mental distress. The parents were called into the school because the counselor thought he was having suicidal ideation. And instead of taking him home, they went back to work and he went back to class. No one searched the bag that he had with him, Todd. And the gun was inside of it. Um, We're also going to be watching now to see the father. And if the father is ultimately convicted as well, he'll be facing trial uh, imminently uh, next month. Um, And one thing about that is that when um, there was a 911 call, the father basically implied that he thought his son might be involved in this, that Mm. his son might be the shooter. So it does show that the parents had some concern and awareness. Um, Four people killed, 11 people injured, um, and The boy who did this was only 15 years old.
0: Anita, as Libby mentioned, the father also set to go on trial soon. What kind of precedent does this set for other cases, I'm sorry to say future cases, that we're likely to see in this country with with minors and gun violence?
2: Of course, every single case is different, and all the evidence and the circumstances are different. But you have seen a lot of families of victims, you've seen people in, you know, gun, what they call gun control groups advocating for holding parents and, you know, other adults responsible for a very long time. Obviously, we've seen more and more mass shootings happening Um, at schools and other places. And you've seen that push and we've just never seen what has happened. So I do think it's going to set a precedent. Of course, we have to see what the circumstances and evidence are every single time. But you can bet that prosecutors across the country are really going to look at this closely and say, look, can I do this this time? So it's going to set a precedent. And I I think you're seeing we saw a lot of comments from parents and family members uh, this week saying, you know, Nothing will obviously change what happened, but they felt that this was really important uh, to have this conviction out there and for someone to be held responsible. All
0: right. We set that news in Michigan aside, and, and Anita and Libby, I think, are correct that it does set a precedent because, unfortunately, there will be more cases. I do want to make sure, in addition, that we get to some economic news. There was a lot of news around the economy, including from the House of the Mouse. That's right. Disney. Announced a new partnership between ESPN, which it owns, Warner Brothers Discovery, and Fox for a joint sports streaming service. That service is set to launch in the fall. What are the details, Megan, of the big deal?
5: So this would be a massive shakeup for for the industry um, and and potentially a death knell for for cable and satellite companies. We've already seen an industry group representing mid- and smaller-sized cable companies – reach out to the Department of Justice and asking them, antitrust authorities, to asking them to review this case. They're worried about what this means for their bottom line. We saw stocks of cable companies go down about 8 percent on this news. uh, And it would really be – a different approach to to watching sports, um, and and also how these bundlers market them, and and you know the the absence of Amazon and and also YouTube in this deal was also notable. I
0: watch my local well, Washington Nationals baseball on a local cable channel that carries local baseball. Like, is that going to die?
5: I could not say one way or the other, but I would say that they're looking at these stocks falling and uh, just which way. They're already struggling, um, These the, a lot of these cable companies. I think that it is certainly a another struggle for them.
0: Our thanks this week to Megan Scully, Bloomberg News' Congress editor, Libby Casey, senior news anchor covering politics and breaking news at The Washington Post, and Anita Kumar, senior managing editor at Politico. Thank you all for joining us today. Before we head to the global edition of the News Roundup... Fans around the country have been raising a Red Solo Cup this week in tribute to the late country star Toby Keith. That country star did not shy away from controversy in his career, from his post-9-11 release courtesy of the Red, White & Blue to performing at Donald Trump's inauguration, but that's not what some of his friends are remembering him for. Here's late-night host Stephen Colbert. I think he enjoyed how unlikely a pair we seemed. I sure did. But Toby was always surprising people. You would think you, you know who Toby Keith was, and then you're watching Obama's Nobel acceptance speech, and there's Toby Keith giving him a standing ovation. Toby taught me not to judge
2: people too quickly. And with his passing... I'm going to try to remember that again. It's something we all need to remember.
0: Toby Keith died Monday from stomach cancer. He was 62. Just like Gene and Roy, singing those campfire songs. Oh, I should have been a cowboy. We'll be back with some of the biggest news from around the world in just a moment. Stay with us.
5: The NPR app cuts through the noise, bringing you local, national, and global coverage. No paywalls, no profits,
0: no nonsense.
2: Download it in your app store today.
0: It's time now for the global edition of the News Roundup. Coming up, President Biden has a rebuke. I'm of the view, as you know, that the conduct
1: of the response... In Gaza, in the Gaza Strip, has been um, over the top.
0: Meanwhile, Israel and Hamas fail to reach a deal to pause the fighting. Also, Pakistan goes to the polls in an election mired in violence and a major military shakeup in Ukraine just days short of the two year anniversary of that war due to Russia's invasion. All of that and much more with my guest in studio, Joyce Karam, senior news editor at All Monitor. She writes the China Middle East briefing newsletter. Great to see you, Joyce.
7: Great to be here, Todd.
0: Jack Detch is here. He's national security reporter at Foreign Policy. Jack, great to see you again.
6: Hey, Todd, good to be here.
0: And David Rennie is joining us from Beijing, where he's the bureau chief for The Economist and co-host of the Drum Tower podcast. David, again, as always, Hello,
1: and Happy New Year.
0: Uh, And oh, Happy Lunar New Year to you as well from there in Beijing. We're very happy to have you. But let's start in Gaza. The latest there, Gaza's health ministry says today, the number of people killed in the tiny blockaded territory since October 7th has now surpassed 27,800. More than two-thirds of those are women and children. The Committee to Protect Journalists says that at least 85 journalists and media workers have been killed. Gaza is, of course, home to... 2.3 million people, and officials say more than half have been forced south toward Rafah, now a focus of Israeli attacks. Israel says that more than 1,200 Israelis have been killed since October 7th, most uh, on that day when Hamas brutally attacked communities in the south of the country, and about half of the approximately 250 Israeli hostages taken by Hamas remain captive. This week, Israeli intelligence concluded that a number of hostages have died since the start of that war well the, the week started off Joyce with some diplomatic optimism of a kind with prospect of a deal floated by the US and Egypt and Qatar there was some back and forth between Israel and Hamas on stipulations of a deal before a rejection by Israel Help us understand what happened.
7: Exactly, Todd. The week started, the leaks we were hearing, we were getting is there is some cautious optimism around a three faced uh, ceasefire deal. That deal would have entailed uh, releasing of Israeli hostages in Gaza, held by Hamas. It would have also entailed uh, releasing of Palestinian uh, prisoners. A stop in the fighting as uh, that's going, and then exchange of bodies of those who uh, who died in uh, in these battles. What uh, came about by the end of the week is Hamas offered a counter uh, proposal to the deal that was negotiated between Egypt, Qatar, uh, and uh, the U.S. as mediators between uh, Israel and Hamas, and. Uh, Netanyahu came out and called the Hamas proposal as delusional. The U.S. mind, you said, there is some opening in that uh, proposal for some form of agreement, but there are also non-starters. Where we are today, talks continue in Egypt to uh, try to get back to the negotiations.
0: So talks continue, Jack. At the same time, there were a lot of definitive statements, ludicrous, rejected, But also the United States does see some light in this room. Is is Hamas trying to signal that they're actually open to negotiation? How do we read through all of the definitive statements? Well, here's the bottom line up
6: front. Hamas wants to hold ground in in Gaza. And that was really the, the whole important point. Of this this deal that they were trying to negotiate, and especially the counteroffer that Joyce was mentioning, it would have left them in power. Uh, they don't want to lose control of Rafa, their last major bastion. That's potentially where the Israelis are now raring to go uh, for another part of their offensive. That's an operation that the Biden administration is very publicly skeptical of for the civilian casualties it could cause. What Hamas specifically doesn't want is a pre-2007 scenario where Israeli boots stay on the ground in Gaza in perpetuity, and that's to a degree why going to the bargaining table makes sense for them right now, because there's so much pressure on Israel to end the war. You have a situation now where the horror, the shock, the sympathy for what happened on October 7th has sort of worn off in the global public sphere – Hamas's popularity, at least in Gaza and and among the surrounding areas, has been rising. And you have the civilian casualties still climbing. You heard Biden himself saying the civilian casualties are way over the top. And that's the pressure point that Hamas is pushing.
0: Well, shortly after meeting with Israeli officials on Wednesday, Antony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, shared some of these thoughts and some words of caution from the region. While there are some clear non-starters in Hamas's response, uh, we do think it creates space... For agreement to be reached, a U.N. team began its mission to the north to assess conditions for the civilians who are still there. And yet, as I said to the prime minister and to other Israeli officials today, the daily toll that its military operations continue to take on innocent civilians remains too high. That's the secretary of state saying he still sees room for an agreement. The prime minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, is still, as we said, talking about absolute victory.
6: We are on our way to absolute victory. The victory is in our reach. It's not a matter of years or tens of years. It's a matter of months.
0: David, and we understand that just today, in fact, moments ago, Benjamin Netanyahu has ordered the evacuation of Rafah in the southern part of the Gaza Strip, where so many people have sought refuge. And that does not sound like the action of a leader who's open to talking. To start
1: with that order that we are seeing breaking on the wires uh, to evacuate Rafah, that raises all kinds of alarm in the region. That, you know, given that these people are now, it's more than half the entire population of the Gaza Strip are now in this city right on the Egyptian border and have been sort of forced in there by fighting and violence and destruction of of infrastructure elsewhere. What would it mean to evacuate them? There's a fear clearly uh, on the Egyptian side that the plan is to push. Palestinians over the border into Egypt. We've seen American officials offering assurances that that is not their vision of how this ends. But if you take a step back beyond the kind of the immediate breaking news of Rafa, and you look, as you say, Todd, at the real sort of rejection of the American brokered, uh, Arab brokered peace talks as well that are going on by Benjamin Netanyahu, there's a couple of enormous problems. The first one is that there's a clear difference of opinion about whether Hamas can be defeated, whether that is the end of this uh, war, the total destruction of Hamas, which is clearly something that Netanyahu has promised uh, that he says uh, is achievable, that is enormously popular with his core voters and members of his uh, right-wing coalition. We saw American intelligence officials brief in Congress that actually, although tremendous damage has been done to Hamas, there's no sign that the Israeli military is anywhere near destroying Hamas. And so it would be hard enough if that was the only point of difference. Can you destroy Hamas? Is that the right goal? But we're now seeing Benjamin Netanyahu, in his rebuke of the American plan, suggesting that the destruction of Hamas is the key to unlocking a broader peace across the Middle East. And that clearly runs very, very much against all of the work that the Americans and their partners in the Arab world have been doing to say, no, no, the path to a lasting peace in the Middle East is concessions on the Israeli side, acknowledgement of the existence eventually of a Palestinian state, normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia, a whole series of concessions and trade-offs that would be needed. But Benjamin Netanyahu is now presenting this idea that it is only the destruction of Hamas which is possible and also is the key to all future peace. And that leaves them really massively at odds with the American view of how this ends.
0: Just, Just hours after Joe Biden stood in front of the nation and said that Israel was over the top, appearing to send a signal to Israel that it needs to back off and clearly Benjamin Netanyahu is not taking that message in any meaningful way. Uh, This week, Israeli intelligence officials uh, reviewed by the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal found that at least 32 hostages held in Gaza have been killed since the war begun. Netanyahu remains adamant that military pressure is the best way to free remaining hostages. But released hostages and family members are intensifying their pressure on the prime minister – to keep their family members safe. This is Jaime, whose brother is being held hostage. Hamas has been asking
7: us for a lot in change of the release of our hostages, but the Israeli government should be aware and should know that hostages come first, first of everything. They need to do uh, anything that they can and beyond to get them back uh, as soon as possible. The, the lives of our own, of our, of our people, must be valued above all of above everything.
0: Joyce, what kind of power do these hostages and their families have as a political force in Israel right now?
7: I mean, they have plenty of public sympathy. They've been protesting. They've been pressuring the government to go into uh, a cease uh, a ceasefire. Uh, the problem that we have, and that as David mentioned, is you have a prime minister who is bent on. Total uh, victory, and you have divisions within the Israeli cabinet itself uh, between the war cabinet that's more willing to seek a negotiating track, and between Netanyahu and the far right who really want to go into Rafah and uh, complete the the, the military uh, mission. It it's um, it doesn't look good for the hostages' families so far that. Almost 130 are still detained. We are, uh, we are four months into this. Uh, New York Times reports others indicating that uh, many, several have died. It also adds pressure on Netanyahu. But so far, it doesn't look that he's listening to, to, this, uh, uh, to this constituency.
0: Does Hamas have incentive right now, today, this week, let's say, to release more hostages?
7: I don't think it does unless they see the attack on Rafah starting, and we, we haven't seen that yet.
0: Although warnings from Benjamin Netanyahu, as we mentioned, two people in Rafah and there are many hundreds of thousands of them now having fled other parts of Gaza that they should evacuate and as we've seen in the conduct of this war, calls to evacuate a center in Gaza means the IDF and drones and airstrikes and attacks are coming. Where do those people go? Part of the terrible dilemma. Uh, David, we were talking a little bit about U.S. aspirations for a normalization deal. Let's touch back on that before we move to the broader Middle East. Antony Blinken, of course, was in the region earlier in the week, as we mentioned. It was his fifth visit since the war erupted. And while he's trying to advance the ceasefire talks, he's also pushing for that larger post-war settlement where Saudi Arabia would normalize relations with Israel in return for what they call a clear, credible, time-bound path to the establishment of a Palestinian state, in the words of the State Department. How does this latest rejection of a deal that we've been talking about complicate the broader aspiration for normalization?
1: I think the aspiration for normalization has got to still be there. And in fact, we saw some of my colleagues from The Economist uh, were reporting that, in fact, privately U.S. officials after the meeting between the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, and uh, the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia... Um, Mohammed bin Salman, they were, in their words, elated by how well the talks had gone because Hmm. the fundamental logic of this deal involving things like American help with a civilian nuclear power program, security guarantees for Saudi Arabia still remains very powerful. But there is the problem that Saudi Arabia, we saw them issuing a statement after the American visit clarifying that they absolutely will not normalize relations with Israel unless there is a Palestinian state because Saudi Arabia now more than was the case last year when these talks began, has to be seen by the rest of the Muslim world and the Arab world as defending the interests of the Palestinians. And so this deadlock with Bibi Netanyahu is certainly capable of dragging out and slowing down the logic, which I think still remains fairly powerful on the Saudi side, that there's a lot that they could see that they could get out of this deal with the Americans in a very dangerous neighborhood. Fascinating to see the Saudis warming ties where I am with China economically, but still looking to the Americans for those fundamental security guarantees.
0: Joyce?
7: Yes, to what David said. And I think the Saudi statement this week on Wednesday made it clear it's not just a path uh, to a Palestinian state. It's Recognition of a Palestinian state on very important benchmark 1967 borders with East Jerusalem as capital. What the Saudis are doing, they're hardening their position because of what's happening in Gaza. The shift in the Arab public opinion is clear across across the region. This is no longer 2020 when the Abraham Accords were signed, big normalization between UAE and uh, and Israel. This is a different time, and the Saudis are. Heeding calls from their public, and uh, basically, it's it's a snub to the uh, White House, basically to John Kirby, that uh, they said that the the statement was in response to his comments.
0: Now, as we draw back from this conflict into the broader Middle East, we see a wider war that's been spilling out across the region since the start of the Israel Hamas war. The United States initiated airstrikes in a number of countries including Syria, Iraq, and Yemen, and these strikes are retaliation for a drone attack late January that killed three U.S. service members. Dozens more were also injured in the attack at the American outpost Tower 22 in Jordan. Jack, we're we're talking about strikes in three different countries. What do we know about what kinds of targets the United States is hitting, the buildings that are being hit, and the choice of targets and the message that's meant to send? This is a
6: little bit of an uptick from the Biden administration because now specifically when it comes to Iraq and Syria, you're going up from the Iranian proxies to actually specific IRGC targets and IRGC groups. That is a new level of escalation, but this is what the Biden administration is trying to do, the balance they're trying to strike of saying to these proxy groups and saying to Iran, there's a price to be paid when U.S. service members die on Middle Eastern soil and trying to degrade their capabilities and basically – Also tamping down the escalation, not actually going after Iran directly, which some of the hawkiest of D.C.'s hawks might actually prefer. With Yemen, it's a little bit of a trickier picture. You have the desire from the West, the United States and the U.K. in particular, to reopen Red Sea shipping. You have countries doing that long, long detour around the Horn of Africa sometimes to to reopen their shipping. That's a significant problem. So they want that to stop, but then you have the issue right there, the complication of the negotiations between the the Houthis and the Saudi Arabians to try and end that uh, civil war in that country. So it's it's enmeshed in all of these tricky issues in the region
0: with politics. The Houthis are an Iranian proxy, yes, but is it accurate to think about them as a direct Iranian proxy like Hezbollah? Are the Houthis quasi-independent? They taking orders from Tehran. How do we think through like their actual role vis a vis Iran in this conflict? There's a level of independence of
6: of all Iranian proxies. The the Houthis probably on the higher end of the spectrum when it comes to independence. These are cave-dwelling people from the north of Yemen. Since 2014, they've taken much more power up throughout the country. uh, As Saleh was was deposed, they sort of used him as an ally, kind of dispensed of of him, uh, the former leader of Yemen. They've really consolidated control of most of that coastal area of Yemen and this is kind of what they want to see coming out of a conflict in that country and also why they've upped the strikes in the Red Sea region. They want to be seen as the big man on campus. So you have this little bit of, of a fractious relationship. They are getting these arms. They are getting this support from
0: Tehran. But they have their own independent goals here. United States trying to debilitate these proxies and send a message without sending the message directly to Tehran. And that's a tough balance to strike. Meanwhile, Joyce... A strike near Baghdad reportedly killed a senior commander of Khatib Hezbollah. That's the Iran-backed militia that the U.S. says is responsible for the drone strike on American service members. The commander killed was Abu Bakr al Sayyidi. What do we know about why he was targeted and why now?
7: Uh, that's a very interesting strike. Uh, Todd Abu Bakr uh, al-Saadi, he was uh, the head of the aerial division in Qata'ab Hezbollah. He also led operations in, uh, in Syria. Why strike him now and why in this form? This was the first targeted assassination that the U.S. carried out in Baghdad uh, since 2020 and the killing of uh, Qasem uh, Soleimani. Uh, and it's the second wave of uh, uh, retribution that the U.S. Is, is launching to the January 28 attack on uh, its base in uh, in Jordan. Uh, we're seeing the U.S. go uh, directly against uh, Head to head against these uh, these militias, it's upsetting the Iraqi uh, government, uh, but uh, but it's uh, it's in line with the contained U.S. response that it will launch targeted strikes operations while trying to avert a regional war.
0: Kataib Hezbollah put out a statement: "We swear we won't be silent." Meanwhile, Iran is in the background, as we've said, David, at the nexus of all all these militia groups is where Iran sits. And your outlet, The Economist, ran a piece this week called Why is Iran Hard to Intimidate? Why are they hard to intimidate?
1: Well, for one thing, Iran cares uh, more about America's presence in the Middle East and wanting America to leave the Middle East than many Americans. Uh, you know, there is a long-standing desire to see America out of the Middle East, but it's also balanced by a sense that, you know, certainly in government, that if you don't have a security presence, you see things going wrong. You see this with the American Navy in action in places like the Red Sea. So America is very torn between, you know, reasons to leave and reasons to stay. Iran is not torn. Iran is extraordinarily focused on a future that it desires with America forced and intimidated out. And so there's just an asymmetry, a mismatch of the level of pain and the price that each of those powers, Iran and America, is willing to pay. That's one problem. The other is that trying to fight militias, people like Houthi rebels, uh, who, you know, you see America firing multimillion dollar missiles from, you know, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of U.S. Navy ships to take out you know, runways to take out uh, bunkers, to take out very low value targets, because these militias are not trying to run a country. Uh, They're just trying to survive. They're willing to take a lot of pain. There's another problem, which is, is a military solution even feasible in this region? And my colleagues at The Economist made the point that maybe a decade ago, you would have seen countries like the Saudis and other Arabs, the United Arab Emirates, longing for America to really use its firepower to try and take out the Iranians and their proxies in places like Syria or Yemen. But a decade on, Iran is just so much stronger in its region. It really has its hooks deep into Syria. Its forces, its proxies are doing very well in Yemen. And so that is why my colleagues believe you see people like the Saudis and the UAE, for all of their fear and dislike of the Iranians, actually trying to go down the diplomatic track with the Iranians, because they've basically given up believing that there is a truly military solution to this. And, you know, that is a a signal that the Americans must also perceive from their Mm. Arab allies in the region.
0: And it's fascinating and frustrating, I'm sure, to American planners that as many of these proxy targets that they strike around the Middle East, it's just not enough to make Iran care all that much about its true interests. Joyce, there have been more than 160 attacks on U.S. forces in the Middle East since October 7th. What do we expect to happen next in this regard? Are we going to see fewer American troops in the region, more American troops in the region, more efforts from the United States to try to brush back Iran? What do you expect?
7: It appears, and I think Jack may know more about this, but that the U.S. military is already overstretched in the region, so I don't think there's much appetite to send more uh, uh, U.S. forces to the region. Uh, where things are is, as David mentioned uh you know, Iran benefits uh, from the state of chaos in the region, from countries that have descended into war, Syria, uh, Yemen, uh, Iraq, and it thrives in that environment by uh, boosting non-state actors. At the same time, it's in nobody's interest, Iran included, to have a regional, a full-blown regional war. And we've seen this line hold despite, you know, four months of uh, bloodletting uh, in Gaza. What's likely is this status Quo to continue uh, to happen, uh, the Houthis continue to attack uh, ships in the uh, in the Red Sea. The U.S. would continue to uh, carry out strikes uh, against them. But uh, yes, I don't. Uh, hopefully, we don't see that escalating to a regional war in the in the Middle East.
0: All right, let's move to updates in Ukraine now. Russia launched its full scale invasion nearly two years ago. This month, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky replaced his top general yesterday, and it's Widely seen as a risky move. Explaining the decision, Zelensky said that most combat commanders are not out front with their troops.
2: As of today, most of them have not experienced the front in the same way as the minority who are really on the front line, really fighting. This means that a different approach is needed, in particular two rotations. Another approach to managing the front. A different approach to mobilization and recruiting. All this will give greater respect to the soldier and return clarity to actions in war.
0: This week, the Ukrainian military says it killed 890 Russian soldiers in a single day, and it's hard to know the exact number of military losses for Ukraine and Russia. Those figures can be weaponized. By each side, more than 10,000 Ukrainian civilians have been killed and double that wounded. Those numbers are from the UN. Um, Jack, how significant this change in military leadership in Ukraine, and how has Ukraine's military evolved throughout this war to this point? It's seen as as
6: turning back the clock from a more modernized NATO-style military that was kind of trading space for time in the early days of the war to a more Soviet-style military. Uh, it's not an exaggeration to sh- say that Zaluzhny's appointment back in 2021 was an earthquake. He's, he's someone who has from a new generation of thinkers. He's somebody who wasn't part of the Soviet army, the first Ukrainian commander not to be so, really brought in these more flexible tactics, was beloved by his troops, uh, was so beloved that it was sort of a threat to Zelensky. Oleksandr Syrsky, who's going to replace him, is somebody who's from the ranks of the Soviet army. He's somebody who was seen as championing the Ukrainian approach in Bakhmut, which was throwing more and more troops into Russian lines. That was really considered something that bogged down and slowed down the Ukrainian offensive's back last year. So this is something that's that's going to be a significant earthquake uh, in in Ukraine's military. One thing I just hear from analysts is uh, a small Soviet army, if you take that approach of fighting like the Soviet army, can't beat a big Soviet army and the Russians.
0: Back here in the United States, David, U.S. support for Ukraine's war effort is on the knife's edge. On Wednesday, Senate Republicans blocked a border bill that also had $60 billion in aid for Ukraine. Thursday, Senate Democrats decided to proceed with a, a stripped-down version of that bill that still has that $60 billion in it. We'll see if it passes. It's going through sort of legislative debate right now. David, how what happened here? I mean, how likely is it that pro-Ukraine Republicans and Democrats will be able to get this aid package through the Senate? How critical is it to Ukraine?
1: I um, mean, the Senate... Uh, has come under tremendous pressure. We saw, fascinatingly, the Polish prime minister tweeting that Republican senators should be ashamed for blocking uh, the first aid package that was linked to the immigration bill, saying that Ronald Reagan would be turning in his grave. So he knows exactly how to try and sort of prod the consciences of Republican senators. But the truth is that Republican senators are less of a problem than Republican members of the House of Representatives. And in fact, we saw this stripped-down bill Uh, being introduced by the Democratic majority leader in the Senate, which basically just was a a bill of uh, sending $95 billion to Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan. And actually, 17 Republican senators vote in favor. That was only a procedural vote, but it's a sign that there is uh, a majority on the Republican side in the Senate for sending more money to Ukraine. The problem is the House, and the House is much more sensitive uh, to the sort of populist, Uh, MAGA Republican arguments and particularly to pressure from former president Donald Trump, who has made it clear not only does he dislike the immigration bill, but he has always been a deep skeptic of the Ukrainian government of Vladimir Zelensky and weirdly uh, tolerant of Vladimir Putin. And, you know, we know Trump's position is that he would come into office if he's reelected and sort out the Ukraine war in 24 hours. Mm. Well, the only way to sort out the war in 24 hours is to impose you know, a deal on the Ukrainians that leaves Russia occupying a fifth of their territory, which is clearly not a deal the Ukrainians want. So there is a real problem. If Donald Trump goes all in on saying no money for Ukraine, uh, not just his previous objection to the immigration bill, if he goes in on no money for Ukraine, then I think it's going to be incredibly difficult to get it through Congress.
0: A few short years in the Congress, it would have been impossible to imagine the center of gravity among Republicans being pro-Russia, and anti-Ukraine. But that is precisely, as David says, where we are right now. Let's turn to this headline. Tucker Carlson, American host and propagandist, has been in Russia. He sat down with Russian leader Vladimir Putin this week. Putin's first interview with a Western media outlet since his invasion of Ukraine. Here's part of their exchange on U.S. support for Ukraine.
6: And so why don't you just call Biden and
2: say... Let's work
6: this out.
7: What's there to work out? It's very simple, I repeat. We have contacts through various agencies. I will tell you what we are saying on this matter and what we are conveying to the US leadership. If you really want to stop fighting, you need to stop supplying weapons. It will be over within a few weeks. That's it. And then we can agree on some terms.
0: Joyce, it's been almost a year since Tucker Carlson was fired by Fox News. What does Vladimir Putin have to gain from interviews like this, but also from his growing support, as David mentioned, on the American Republican right?
7: This looked from what I've watched as a very easy, soft interview that Vladimir Putin got to amplify his propaganda uh, on, on Ukraine. I mean, Tucker Carlson looked stand. Most of the time, he lectured him about the history of uh, uh, Russia for there,
0: twenty-eight minutes. At one for point, for
7: twenty-eight minutes, there were moments where Tucker Carlson was laughing hysterically. I didn't understand the joke there, but it was definitely an interesting uh, back and forth when it happened. For Putin, this was this was an opportunity to uh, rally his base, to talk to uh, uh, to uh, you know Americans that are sympathizers of Tucker, too, about his uh, message on. Uh, Ukraine. But mostly this is this was the idea behind giving the interview to Tucker Carlson and say not to you or to Steve Inskeep or to uh, Steve Rosenberg. Uh, these would have been very different sets of questions. I'll say. And- uh, exactly. So, uh, so yeah, this was a big propaganda moment for uh, Putin, and he made the best out of Jack, it. Jack,
0: what's your read on the two things happening simultaneously? Ukraine funding on the bubble in Congress, growing support among Trumpist Republicans for Putin. Meanwhile, a propagandist like Tucker Carlson in town to do interviews broadcast around the world.
6: Yeah, I mean, certainly it's a branding exercise for, for Tucker Carlson. It, it seems like there is sort of some pro-Putin sympathy within some ranks of Republicans. It's not clear that it's very detailed. So this kind of allows that propaganda, again, as Joyce was saying, to keep being amplified. It goes to show the context actually matters. This is why we have journalists like uh, Steve Rosenberg and you and, and Joyce and um, Steve Inskeep is to have people who can debunk these things. I, I recommend that uh, our uh, listeners go and, and look at um, Steve Rosenberg's interview with um, the Belarusian Lukashenko. Um, just a a masterclass in that. But it was obvious that Putin wanted no part of something like that. Yeah, And
0: I'll just add to that if I even have to, that Rosenberg, Inske, Zwillik, none of us have lied about January 6th since it happened either. So that's my read on Tucker Carlson and his role in all this. Let's leave that there. And let's move on to Pakistan. National elections that took place on Thursday. Votes are still being counted but preliminary results put the party of imprisoned former Prime Minister Imran Khan in the lead. Its candidates ran as independents because their party has been barred from this election. Here's their spokesperson.
3: Now is the time to allow democracy to flourish. Whichever political party gets the votes has the right to govern, and that right is given without any interference. And to stop this interference, we will do whatever the laws and regulations give us.
0: The day before polls open, terrorists attacked election offices, killing at least 30 people. On election day, Pakistan had no cell phone service. The government said it had blocked access for security purposes. Jack, why are these elections such a big moment for Pakistan?
6: Well, this is really about the military's back and forth with the political parties. And this is kind of a fascinating moment, right? Because Prime, Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif, former Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif and his Muslim League party, are claiming victory, they're still behind in the polls. And back in 2018, they were the ones that that were silenced and harassed by the military. Now it's the shoes on the other foot. It's Imran Khan's party uh, that's been silenced and harassed by the military. Most of their candidates are running as independents without the party's cricket bat behind them, and they're still they still seem to be winning in these elections despite. Sharif taking a victory lap today and saying uh, that the Muslim League is going to be the largest party out of the elections. Maybe he's bluffing, maybe he's not, but it certainly seems like this is going to be a fascinating moment as these results continue to come in. If it is Khan's party that's prevailed, of course, he's behind bars right now, has has gotten three more sentences. Uh, but it, if it is his party that prevails, there might be this fascinating moment of – the popular resistance, again, against the military, we certainly saw that as he was first jailed. Uh, I was going I mean, to say And yeah. that,
0: that would be a major upset of the military establishment or would be perceived as such. Yeah. I mean, it's it seems certainly likely if you just look at the historical
6: track record, the country will continue to be under the military's boot. But it's getting more tricky, right? There's this economic strain, and if it has a political crisis on its hands, whether it's Sharif in power, whether it's someone from, from Khan's party in power as an independent, which certainly seems unlikely, certainly seems unlikely the military would allow that, it, it could
0: all just explode. All right. We're globetrotting just a little bit, but I want to leave Pakistan and make sure that we check in on Latin America, specifically El Salvador where Nayib Bukele, El Salvador's president and self-proclaimed world's coolest dictator, won re-election on Sunday by a landslide. It made him the first president of El Salvador's history to ever serve two terms.
6: En toda la historia del mundo, desde que existe la democracia, nunca un proyecto había ganado con la cantidad de votos que hemos ganado este día.
0: That's Nayib Bukele speaking to a crowd from the National Palace in the capital of San Salvador shortly after claiming victory. He says, quote, in the history of the world since the existence of democracy never has an administration won with the amount of votes that we have won. That sounds a little familiar rhetoric like that. But although uh, Bukele is a polarizing figure in global politics, David, it's, it's undeniable that he does have a lot of favor among the majority of Salvadorian people. What about his re-election is revelatory about the state of democracy in El Salvador? Is it as strong as he says? So
1: he is one of the most alarmingly successful and, as you say, genuinely very popular authoritarian strongmen that we're seeing all over the world. And the particular context, which I think explains people's willingness to vote for a man who has in many ways trampled uh, the rules of El Salvador's constitution. He was not meant to be running for a second term. There's meant to be term limits, but he did this kind of run around saying that he'd taken a six month leave of absence. He's fired lots of judges. Uh, he's fired his attorney general. He's uh, poured enormous amounts of money into the security forces, all the things that we associate with these sort of strongmen attacks on democracy elsewhere. But the unique circumstance is that El Salvador, like so many countries in Central America, has been absolutely crucified by gang violence. And had one of the highest murder rates in the entire world. And when he came to office after a brief moment of trying to negotiate with the gangs, he then put in this campaign, which he called uh, Manoduro, like an iron fist, hard sort of hand campaign. And there are now 74,000 uh, young men uh, suspected, thrown into prison in incredibly tough conditions, simply because the police suspect they might be gang members or because a member of the public called a hotline and said they thought they might be gang members and there are no trials happening for most of these people it's about 8% of all young men in El Salvador and lots of families saying that their sons are in prison for without you know justification but the reality is that that world's highest murder rate has fallen dramatically uh, by sort of 20 fold and businesses that used to have to pay protection money people who used to be too frightened to walk on the streets are now feeling safe in their own homes and so His extremely tough, strongman, authoritarian message in the context of an incredibly brutal crime wave does seem to have made him genuinely popular. But it doesn't mean he's not a very dangerous force in terms of the rule of law and
0: democracy. I want to leave Latin America and make sure that we have time for some news out of China, especially because... David, our World China expert, is here with us for the hour because for the first time in more than 20 years, Mexico became the biggest source of goods in the U.S., surpassing China. This week, the U.S. Department of Commerce released some numbers showing that goods imported from Mexico rose in value by 5% between 2022 and 2023. But the bigger gap was the change in values of Chinese imports to the U.S., which went down 20% in the same period. Remarkable sort of change of fortunes. David, what do these numbers say about the U.S.-China relationship right now?
1: They say a couple of big things. They say that decoupling In some areas, particularly in trade, in things that have had pretty high tariffs slapped on them first by the Trump administration and actually kept in place by Biden. That decoupling is real and you can see it having an effect. So where the tariffs are really high, you can see those sorts of goods uh, really falling. But something much more complicated and perhaps uh, difficult for American politicians to really get a grip with is also happening, which is that Chinese goods are actually still arriving in America, but they're being Channeled through other countries, either just simply channeled through subsidiaries and just arriving uh, with a kind of new label on the box, or in many cases, we're seeing Chinese companies moving their entire supply chains. You're seeing this in things like car parts, auto parts uh, into Mexico and taking advantage of Mexico's free trade access up into America. So, yes, it's coming out of Mexico, but it's actually coming out of a Chinese owned factory with a whole chain of Chinese suppliers. And that's entirely legal and you know, it's, it's how capitalism works. They're allowed to move a factory to Mexico and take advantage of that free trade deal. And I think what you're seeing is that decoupling is real, but decoupling is also extremely hard to make it watertight, if that is your political objective, which I think it is in mm. some people in Washington.
0: And decoupling seems to be getting awfully expensive for China. I want to thank our panelists, for all of their time and their expertise, Joyce Karam, senior news editor at All Monitor, she writes the China Middle East briefing newsletter. Jack Detch is a national security reporter at Foreign Policy. And David Rennie is Beijing bureau chief for The Economist and co-host of the Drum Tower podcast and our most valued China expert here on The Roundup. Before we go, a new trend on TikTok harkens back to an ancient Scottish word, Social media influencer Kira Kasarin started the trend last month. Just thought
4: you guys should know that the Scottish have a word for laying around in bed after it's time to get up, and it's called herkle durkeling I do be Herklin' and I do be dirkling, and once I've Herkled my last dirkle in a given morning, I will get up. But I'm a big fan of a herkle durkle so.
0: So, it's TikTok. So, you know, the blowback was lightning quick. Even lots of Scots responded that they had never even heard this term. But a Scottish influencer's response this week did catch our eye. Here's Carolyn McQuiston.
5: From my experience, no, hirkle Darkle" is not commonly used in Scotland, as it stands. But did this
3: phrase disappear with many of the rest when the Scots were repeatedly made to feel ashamed of their
5: language and their culture? Maybe. So why the heck not take joy in the fact that one person's TikTok has potentially brought back a phrase from the brink of extinction and put it in the minds and mouths of millions of people. How cool is that?
0: That's Hercule Durkle. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer with help from Kellen Quigley, who took over the board this week. Special thanks also to Kennedy Wright and Adrian Danhauser. Chris Costano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior managing producer. A.C. Valdez is our senior supervising producer. Amanda Williams is our special projects editor. Aline Humphries is the editor and producer of 1A On Demand. With help from Matthew Simonson, Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington. It's distributed by NPR. I'm Todd Zwilich. We'll talk again soon. This is 1A. And from the sound of it, your business is growing. But you shouldn't have to pay more to scale your business. With Stamps.com, you can import orders from wherever you sell online, find the lowest rates with the fastest delivery times, and instantly deliver tracking updates to your customers and stock up on supplies. Get started at Stamps.com today with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, free postage, and a digital scale.